professor at Olin College, and I study asteroids. I have a pretty cool job, and one of my favorite parts is getting to meet all the interesting people who spend their days exploring space. Each week, I'll introduce you to one of these smart folks and ask them to tell us about their corner of the cosmos. Today's guest is Professor Samantha Lawler, who is a professor of astronomy at the University of Regina in Canada. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) We are recording on June 2nd, 2022, so we're doing this remotely. Also, we're in different countries. I am going to be trying this Wegmans Latte. The flavor is salted caramel. I have low expectations about this. It says it's 100 calories per can. And, you know, Uh, obviously people can make choices that are best for them, but low calorie drinks are often not the tastiest. (laughs) What are you drinking? I I made a glass of rhubarb aid. Awesome. (laughs) I live out on a farm. And don't make it into the city to buy fancy drinks very often anymore, especially. Um, So this is made with rhubarb from my farm and honey from our neighbor across the road. So uh, so so it's very local. (laughs) So I hope it's actually good. I haven't actually tried it yet. (laughs) I bet it's delicious. It is like the most pretty color of pink. I think I put too much. Wow. I put too much honey in. It's very sweet. (laughs) (laughs) Can you taste the rhubarb? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 pretty nice. As long as you don't think about lemonade, it's it's its own thing. It's definitely <laughs> not lemonade, but I can I can grow rhubarb. I can't grow lemons here, so it's it's a good substitute. What a fun drink! I'm gonna open mine. Whoa, this thing really has like a, a salted caramel smell. <laughs> Yikes! <laughs> I mean, it's okay. <laughs> it's like watery salted caramel. There's like not a lot of coffee taste and there's kind of like a weird powdered dairy aftertaste Mm. i'm sure i'm sure there's some circumstances where this is good but i'll probably drink it for the rest of the episode (laughs) who am i kidding (laughs) so now that we are drinking our assorted drinks we are going to talk about planet nine which may or may not exist listeners have probably heard about planet nine planet nine has not yet been discovered and what i mean by that is that there's no images of it taken where we see like the planet and that's like the gold standard for discovery in astronomy. However, people think it might be there. Could you start us off by explaining why astronomers think that planet nine may exist? It all starts with the discovery of Kuiper belt objects, right? So out in the outer solar system, there are probably hundreds of thousands of small icy bodies. So like Pluto is one of the biggest ones. And for many decades, Pluto was the only Kuiper Belt object that was known. But now we know something like 2,000 Kuiper Belt objects that have been imaged and had their orbits measured. And there's many different types of orbits that they follow. And this is telling us something about the, the past history of the solar system. Or maybe about stuff that we can't actually measure yet, because these small icy bodies are sort of tracers of the gravitational influence of all the other planets in the solar system. So the very most distant ones are so far away that they never get very close to Neptune at all. So Neptune is, you know, the outermost planet. It's the one that most strongly affects the Kuiper belt, which is closest to Neptune. But some of them are so far away that they never really get a good gravitational kick from Neptune. And the first few of these that were discovered were all kind of in the same direction, right? Their orbits sort of pointed 
out away from the sun in the same direction, which is kind of weird because you would expect to have them sort of uniformly distributed around the solar system. So it was kind of strange that the first few were all in the same direction. So that's where the Planet Nine theory came from. A couple of different groups of astronomers proposed the idea that, well, maybe there is another planet really far away that's pretty big, something like 10 times the mass of Earth, um, that its gravitational influence is what's causing all of these really distant Kuiper Belt objects to be on the same side of the solar system at the same time. And so that is the theory of Planet Nine. And so many different groups now are looking for this this planet, but it would be really, really far away and really faint and really hard to detect. So it hasn't been found yet. And I think there's some other reasons why the first few of the very distant Kuiper Belt objects were all on the same side of the solar system. So we can talk more about that. <laughs> yes, let's do it. If it's not a planet that are grouping them together, what else could be causing that? There's a few different things that could be affecting the outer solar system. Occasionally, there are stars that come fairly close to the solar system. You know, over the few billion years of the solar system's history, there have been close passes by stars. When the solar system first formed, a lot of stars were much closer together, so it would have been more likely. There's also a possible way that if there is a whole lot of Kuiper Belt objects, like the mass of the Earth in Kuiper Belt objects way out there, that could actually be gravitationally influencing these very distant orbits. And the most boring and unexciting explanation, which is the one that I like the most, is observational biases. Not a very exciting thing to talk about, but it's really important for understanding what we see in the Kuiper Belt in particular. Uh, so that's my theory. I think that the reason that all of the Kuiper Belt objects look like they're on the same side of the solar system is because nobody really did a good job of looking in the other direction. And that sounds ridiculous, right? Like, why wouldn't someone have thought of that? But it's actually really complicated to, to keep track of all of these, these biases. And looking for something and not finding it, that's not something that scientists like to report, right? There's this whole database called the Minor Planet Center database where you report your discoveries when you find small bodies in the solar system. There's nowhere to report where you looked and didn't find anything, right? But that's actually really important information because that's telling you if nobody looked over there, then that's important to know. And if somebody looked there and didn't find anything, then that is also really important to know. So not only does it depend on where people pointed telescopes, it also depends on the weather on the mountaintops where these telescopes are located. It depends on where the Milky Way is, because we see Kuiper Belt objects as little, they basically look like moving stars. And so if you look in a place on the sky where there are a lot of background stars, it's a lot harder to find these small moving stars. So it's harder to find them in the Milky Way. So we don't find Kuiper Belt objects there. And because of the locations of telescopes on Earth and the weather, we don't find Kuiper Belt objects at certain times of the year quite as well. And that affects where we can see them in the solar system. So there's a whole bunch of really complicated reasons why we might not have looked in the, the other direction very well yet. 
there's so many issues associated with observational biases. I mean, first, this idea of reporting where you didn't look is so important. And I know that there's a lot of people in support of that theory because otherwise everyone looks twice, right? Yes. And it's wasted effort. If you know someone else looked in positions A, you can look in position B for that same thing. And that would help a whole bunch of people in their science. And I think there's some proposals to move forward on that. So hopefully we get some progress on that as a community. There's also this idea of these objects are moving, and maybe this is a bigger issue for near-Earth asteroids, but it's like trying to count people in a crowd. You can count where they are at one moment, but then if you try to count them again in a year, everyone's moved around, except for maybe a crowd doesn't last a year. (laughs) But asteroids do. So these things are also constantly moving, so you have to keep track of where you looked when. There's a huge number of telescopes in Arizona, and then there's not only weather... You might think of weather as being random. Like at any given day, you have a 25% chance of rain depending on your climate. But in a lot of places, you have like seasonal storms (laughs) where in the summer, you're just totally rained out. And so if you think about the earth traveling around the sun, that blinds you to a whole portion of the sky. If all of your your telescopes are in one place, it always gets rainy at one time. Yeah, exactly. Many of the Kuiper Belt discoveries are from Mauna Kea in Hawaii, right? So yeah, it's the same, same idea and summer from Chile. So you would think like, oh, well, those will just cancel out opposite seasons, right? But like they have the rainy seasons at slightly different times. So it doesn't just cancel out in, you know, different parts of the sky are accessible from different places on earth. So especially for these really distant objects. So like Pluto is on a very eccentric orbit. So very elliptical orbit, and it's quite tilted. These more distant objects could be even more tilted. So where you can look on the sky will affect how tilted of an object you can find. Another bias that's, I think, more important for the outer solar system than near-Earth objects is the, the distance bias. So we see Kuiper Belt objects and asteroids in reflected light, right? They don't make their own light. So light from the sun has to go all the way out to the the Kuiper Belt object, reflect off of the Kuiper Belt object, and come all the way back to us. And it drops off in brightness by one over distance squared, and then it drops off by another one over distance squared, because we're basically as far away from the Kuiper Belt object as the sun is. So it's one over distance to the fourth power. So if you find a Kuiper Belt object that is 10 times closer than another Kuiper Belt object, it's going to be 10,000 times brighter than the one that's farther away, right? So you are very biased toward finding the ones that are in closer. And when you're talking about these very elliptical orbits, then you're only going to find them when they're at the closest points in their orbits. You know that there's a lot of other stuff that's further out that you can't see, and you can sort of work that out. But the only ones you're going to find are the ones that are closest in right now. There's also biases in which objects you decide to follow up on, right? Because they're always moving you discover something and then you have to find it again a year later to make sure it's where you thought it was and it's following the orbit that you predicted, right? And if it's not there, you messed up and you lost it. Now it's gone, right? So so now you just, you added that bias in because you made a bad assumption about the orbit and that's really common. Or you didn't get the telescope time that you needed or it was cloudy and you didn't get to follow up on it, right? So, so there's many reasons why you might not find it again a year later and now it's gone. So do you report it? Do you say, oh, well, I found something, but I don't actually know what it was. So 
yeah, generally you don't report those because they don't have good orbits. So, so that's a, a tracking bias, right? If you don't track these and uh, different groups might have different strategies, right? Like I know one of the Kuiper Belt discovery groups that is excellent at finding very distant Kuiper Belt objects are only interested in finding very distant Kuiper Belt objects. So they ignore everything that's not beyond a certain distance right now. So they discover lots of stuff, but they don't track it. So that's a bias, right? Because you don't know what orbits you're throwing away. So you've done a very clear job of explaining kind of the challenges. But I also know, since you're an astronomer, you've, you've got something extra, which is like math. How do you prove this? So the way to do this very carefully is to have a big survey where you discover a lot of objects and you know all your biases really well. You know exactly where you looked on the sky. You track everything that you discover. You very carefully keep track of all of the possible biases that could go into this. And then you can say, okay, well, I discovered these things. That means that I missed all of these other ones that were just too far away from my survey or were just in the wrong part of their orbits or something, right? So you can do that, um, which is what I did as a part of the Outer Solar System Origin Survey, which discovered the most Kuiper Belt objects of any survey ever, which is really cool. And we know all of our biases and out of more than 800 Kuiper Belt objects, we only didn't track two of them because they were in too close. So, I mean, like we did a really good job. It's, you know, a huge team effort, right? It's like 40 astronomers from eight different countries. So, you know, I'm not taking credit for this. This is like, I, I did a tiny little part of it and a whole bunch of other people did a lot of work to make this a really good survey, right? But the problem is that's not all of the Kuiper Belt objects. So when we say, okay, well, let's just look at the really distant ones that would be affected by a giant distant planet. And we only have four, right? So it's, it's not the like 15 or 17 that you can get from looking at the minor planet center database. So the downside of doing a really careful survey is that you don't have everything. <laughs> so, but you know, all of the biases that went into that, right? So yeah, and the point of the survey was not to like disprove Planet Nine, right? The survey was ongoing way before this particular distant planet idea was proposed. The point of the survey was to discover a lot of Kuiper Belt objects and keep really careful track of our biases so that we can learn about the real distribution of orbits in the Kuiper Belt, which is really powerful for understanding the history of our solar system. You mentioned a couple reasons why you might lose an object that are kind of out of the astronomer's control, like weather or the telescope breaks or something, or you don't get telescope time. Is it also fair to say that this is pretty time intensive and not every survey has those resources? And so it's just not a priority. Yeah, it's time intensive and it takes years, especially when you get into the really distant orbits. Like I'm part of a survey right now, we're discovering new Kuiper Belt objects. We're on year three and we still don't have good enough orbits to say exactly what type of orbits we've discovered yet. It takes years. And I just found out a couple of days ago that we got time to continue, you know, for Yay! this year. But if we didn't, then those would all be lost, right? Like if you have to keep following them up because if I don't follow them up for two years, then the position on the sky where that object might be is now huge. So I have to use a whole lot more telescope time to try to find that one moving fuzzy dot <laughs> that I thought I knew the orbit of. The uncertainty on the sky gets bigger and bigger every year until you measure it again. 
So some of them are effectively lost. It's like you would have to do a whole new survey to find this object again. And sometimes they're rediscovered, but sometimes they're just gone. (laughs) So Osos found four of these objects. What did those objects tell you about the existence or not of Planet Nine? And I'm sure there's going to be caveats. So if you look at a map of where are all of these distant Kuiper Belt objects? And, you know, they're all very eccentric orbits. So it's a whole bunch of ellipses. And they're all discovered at the closest part of their ellipses. And so if you draw a picture of that right now for all of the known very distant Kuiper Belt objects, the ones that are supposed to be most affected by a distant planet, it looks now like there's about half of the solar system that has these very distant objects. And there's a couple in the other direction. And there's one that's like 90 degrees off from where the prediction is. And there's one that's in the opposite direction. And the one that's 90 degrees off are from Osses, (laughs) as are two in the, the direction that you would expect from Planet Nine. So half of the ones that we discovered out of four, which is a small number, I realize, but half of the ones that we discovered were not in the direction that is predicted by the planet nine theories. Because we know our biases really well, we can run that through our software and say, this is statistically consistent with a uniform distribution. There is no evidence for clustering. It doesn't disprove planet nine, but it does not have evidence in favor of planet nine, right? With the caveat that there's only four of them. (laughs) That's so interesting. And it's such a kind of a tantalizing clue. (laughs) You could have happened to discover two that weren't in that space, but it's also, you know, very consistent with the fact that maybe these orbits are not as clustered as people initially thought. So there's another survey, the Dark Energy Survey, and this, you can tell from the name that this is not specifically a Kuiper Belt survey. So this is another team that I'm not involved in, but they basically piggyback a Kuiper Belt survey on top of a cosmology survey. So they have all of this data and they search through it with really impressive uh, computationally intensive algorithms to find a whole bunch of Kuiper Belt objects in there. They did an amazing job, but they also know their biases really well. And they also discovered four Kuiper Belt objects that are really, really distant that could be affected by Planet Nine. So OSIS, we kind of had places on the sky in all directions, while the DES, the Dark Energy Survey, they had all of their places on the sky kind of in one direction, which happens to be in the direction of the Planet Nine clustering that you would expect. So the four that they discovered were on the very edges of this, this clustering, right? Like they're almost 180 degrees away from each other. And when they run their software, they also come to the conclusion that this is consistent with a uniform distribution. They don't see any evidence for clustering in their discoveries. But again, it's a small number. One of the, I believe he's a PhD student on the DES team, sort of tried to put together OSIS and DES and one other survey that he thought he could get a pretty good handle on the the detection biases was uh, surveyed by Shepard and Trujillo. And so that now has, I think it was a a dozen or so very distant Kuiper Belt objects. And when they run that through the software, they say that it is also consistent with a uniform distribution. It is not consistent with any sort of clustering in direction caused by Planet Nine. So now it's been done several different ways. 
just looking at the detections where we know the biases. And when you just look at the ones where we know the biases, so you have to throw away some of the ones where you don't know the observation biases. But every single time, <laughs> the answer is, this is consistent with a uniform distribution. It's real tough to be like, there's no Planet Nine if Planet Nine is really hard to image, right? Like, unless you really search the whole sky super carefully. Yep. Are you looking forward to more data accumulating on this from different surveys? Or do you feel like the conclusion is fairly clear right now? I am totally convinced that there is no evidence for clustering. I think that all of the, the clustering can be explained by observation biases. Every single time that it's been looked at carefully, there's no evidence for clustering. So it doesn't disprove Planet Nine. It doesn't disprove that there's something else out there. I think there's still a lot of very interesting stuff to find, right? So, so yes, I want more data. I want, I want, <laughs> I want, uh, you know, I am so happy about the Planet Nine theory because a whole bunch of people suddenly jumped into this area of solar system studies, right? So the Kuiper Belt, right? Like there's, there's a few people who study it and not that many. And all of a sudden, a whole bunch of people jumped in from other related areas of astronomy. And there was a huge amount of research done over the last couple of years of different ways that you could create this clustering, different ways that you could explain it. You know, what does that tell us about the past history of the solar system? And, you know, a whole bunch of really great research got completed very quickly because of this theory. So, so I think that's a pretty great outcome. <laughs> Everybody has heard about Planet Nine. It used to be that when I go and visit classes, the most common question I would get was about black holes. Now I get asked about Planet Nine every single time, right? <laughs> so that's great, right? Like it's, it's making people curious about about what's in the outer parts of our solar system. So in that way, it is a fantastically <laughs> successful theory. So I'm, I'm happy about it, <laughs> even if I don't think it's true. <laughs> what a great perspective. So changing gears just a little bit, Professor Lawler visited my AstroStats class just a few months ago to talk about a different issue, which is our changing night skies due to mega satellite constellations. Do you want to just talk briefly about that and maybe point listeners to more resources if they're interested about that evolving important situation. Yeah. So I talked about weather biases and not getting telescope time and, you know, orbital problems. And so another big problem that's happening very quickly is light pollution from satellites. So the number of satellites in orbit has increased dramatically in the last couple of years, in the last couple of weeks, like it's increasing so fast. You just talked to Dr. Meredith Rawls about this, right? So there's a whole episode that you should listen to on this, but specifically for the Planet Nine issue and for the outer solar system, this is going to be a huge problem because we stare at a patch on the sky for, you know, five minutes. And in that time, many bright satellites will fly through our field of view. The Starlink satellites in particular are brighter than naked eye visible on average, which you can imagine with a very sensitive telescope where we're trying to find very faint, tiny moving objects. That's a huge problem. A typical Starlink is 15 million times brighter than a typical Kuiper Belt object that I'm trying to find. So I've noticed in my data, the number of satellite streaks going through the images is getting bigger and bigger. All Kuiper Belt science relies on these 
wide field images. So I've written a whole paper about this and given many, many talks. I complain a lot about this on Twitter because that's a great way to tell people what's happening. My Twitter handle is sundogplanets. <laughs> And I, I'm actively trying to figure out how bright will these satellites be? How will this change the night sky for our eyes and for astronomy research? And, you know, this is, this is an engineering decision. The satellites could be made fainter. They could be using fewer of them, but that's not a priority right now. So astronomy research will be severely hampered by this, this engineering decision in the near future. So I would love to have more images trying to find hyperbelt objects in the outer solar system, but this is a new bias that I'm going to have to take into account. It's going to make it a little bit harder to do um, these really detailed measurements of what's out there in the solar system. And we're going to miss discoveries because of that. So, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty serious. Thanks for sharing that. And I also just want to highlight that, you know, CNN flew a production crew oh, and reporter yeah. out to interview and it was a great interview. So I'll link to that on the website as well. And it's not very long if listeners want a, a quick refresh on that topic. Yeah, I live out on a farm. I live in a very dark place. So it's really easy for me to see the satellites from my back door flying in front of the Milky Way. It's really quite obnoxious. For this news interview, we drove a couple hours away from my house to a really dark place. So that's one of the best parts of living in Saskatchewan. We have huge skies and it's really easy to get to places that are far from light pollution. But it was absolutely horrifying how many satellites there were. Like any spot on the sky, you would see a satellite fly through within 30 seconds, any, wow. any tiny patch on the sky. So, so that's what, that's what astronomers are, are dealing with now, trying to see things behind this net of satellites that we're putting up around ourselves. So I encourage everyone to go out to a dark place and see this with your eyes. Urban light pollution, you can get away from the satellite light pollution, you cannot get away from, but it could be made better if they made their satellites fainter and if they used fewer of them. So push for that. If you have a choice, don't use satellite internet. I realize that's not a choice for everybody, but if you do need to use satellite internet, particularly Starlink, tell them that you want them to make their satellites fainter because this is something that's in their power. They're just, uh, it's not a high priority for them right now. So we still can change this. We can still make it better. <laughs> I just feel like, Astronomers are the canary in the coal mine here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of other problems, of course. So you should listen to Meredith Rawls' interview. <laughs> so yeah, thank you so much for talking about Planet Nine and also about satellite mega constellations. Thanks for being on the show. And now that we've heard all about that, we get to hear a fun fact about Samantha. Uh, fun fact is I have um, turkeys hatching in my office right now. <laughs> Really? You know, part of living on a farm is that uh, I hatch turkeys, I hatch chickens, and then we'll raise them on grass and they'll be lovely Thanksgiving dinners for people later in the year. The best place to set up the incubator is in my office. So, you know, during my Zoom meetings, there's often peeping in the background. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty fun. That's amazing. This, I believe this is the only space pod interview with like hatching eggs in the background. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks for sharing and thanks again for being on the show. This was lovely. Yeah, th thank you for having me. It was really fun talking to you. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Intro music is from The Return by Deltron3030. Huge thanks to Deltron3030 for letting me use it. The beeps you just heard are from the very first space probe, Sputnik. You can visit us at listentospacepod.com and we're at listentospacepod on Twitter. 
The views expressed here do not reflect the views of my employer or the employer of my guest. Thanks for listening.